0: Spiritual Sword Media presents The Anchor of the Soul with Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ in Olive Branch, Mississippi. Fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. And now, Mike Hickson. I want to give you some characteristics or some traits that I believe Are found in the scriptures relating to the life of Christ. During the earthly ministry of Jesus we have questions posed concerning who he was. As a matter of fact Jesus himself asked the question on one occasion who do men say that I the son of man am? And of course in Matthew chapter 16 we find The Apostles providing a variety of answers as to who some were saying that He was. Well, the Bible tells us in a very definitive way about the life's work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And tonight I want us to think about several of the things that are mentioned in the Scriptures relating to the Son of God. First of all, we call attention to the virgin birth of Christ. It's somewhat interesting to read the prophecies given about the coming of Jesus. All the way back in the Garden of Eden, we find God making a promise to Adam and Eve that he would send the promised seed, according to chapter 3 at verse 15. And then, going forward in time, we read about some of the inspired writers pointing people in the direction of the coming of of God's only Son. Isaiah, in chapter 7, at verse 14, the passage read a moment ago, provides us insight into the virgin birth. The Bible says, The Lord himself shall give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah has been called the statesman prophet. He was writing some 700 years before Jesus would come into the world. And yet, we pick up in the book of Matthew and we have the announcement about the coming of the Son of God. And specifically, an announcement relating to the virgin birth. The Bible tells us that an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And he said unto Joseph, Fear not to take unto you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she shall bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for it is he that shall save his people from their sins. And then Matthew tells us that all of this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, The virgin shall conceive and bear bear a son... And you will call his name Emmanuel, which is being interpreted, God with us. And so here we have this great announcement concerning the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And Matthew makes the correlation to the prophecy that had been given some seven centuries earlier by Isaiah the prophet. Now... We also read of the advent of the Son of God, and that would have to do with his birth. The Bible tells us in the latter part of chapter 1 and then also in chapter 2 of the book of Matthew that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. And wise men came from the east, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Well, the prophet Micah, in Micah chapter 5, had foretold of the birthplace of the Son of God. He said that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. That's exactly where the Son of God was born. Luke tells us that Mary brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn, according to Luke chapter 2 at verse 7. So the virgin birth. Now I would remind you, that when we talk about the virgin birth, we're talking about the fact that a body was prepared for the Christ in the womb of Mary. Jesus was as heavenly as his father and as earthly as his mother. The Hebrew writer tells us in Hebrews chapter 10 that a body was prepared for the Christ. Well, Jesus, as you know, was and is the second member of the Godhead. He is the one by whom the world was made according to John chapter 1 at verse 3. And yet for the purpose of coming to secure the salvation of mankind, Jesus submitted to the virgin birth. But then I want you to think about in the second place, the virtuous life of Christ. And we're talking really about His purity. The Bible talks over and over again about the purity or sinlessness of Jesus Christ. Let me just call your attention to some passages of Scripture that I think underscore this idea. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, John the Apostle talks about the purity of Christ. And there are two things that I want to call your attention to specifically along these lines. First of all, the fact that Jesus was triumphant over sin. Now that's somewhat monumental when you begin to think about it. Can you imagine living a sinless life? Life here upon this earth. A life above reproach. A life above sin. That's what the Bible says concerning Christ. The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 26. That Jesus is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Made higher than the heavens. In Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 the Bible says. We have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities but one who was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus never said a cross word. He never uttered any kind of profanity. He he never said anything out of line that would bring reproach upon himself. Nor did he ever engage in any kind of conduct that would have been unbecoming of who he was. Never, never said anything wrong, never did anything wrong. He was sinless. He was pure. And so Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2 at verse 21 that Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps who did no sin, neither was guile or deceit found in his mouth. And so here the apostle Peter Is simply saying that Jesus Christ lived above sin. What a great compliment to the Son of God. No wonder John would say in John chapter 7 of his gospel that no man ever spoke like this man. When you look at the life and the deeds of the Son of God, you see somebody who was spotless, who was above reproach. And so we think about his virtuous life. But also, not only was he triumphant over sin... The Bible tells us that he was triumphant over Satan. In Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14, the Hebrew writer said that Jesus Christ destroyed him who had He destroyed him who had the power of death. That is the devil. Back in Genesis chapter 3 at verse 15, we read about a prophecy concerning the coming of the Christ. And one of the things that was spelled out in Genesis chapter 3 was the fact that when Jesus died on Calvary's cross, he would deliver a death blow to Satan or to the devil. He would literally bruise his head. And that's exactly what happened. Paul said in Colossians chapter 2 that he spoiled principalities and powers. He made an open show of them, triumphing over them. And so... Christ was triumphant over the devil. He destroyed the devil. Read the book of Revelation. When you read the 22 chapters of the book of Revelation, and bear in mind that God's people at that point in time in history were undergoing a siege of persecution. And really, as someone has said in times past, when you read the book of Revelation, you could simply conclude the book by saying this, Thank God we won. Well, the book of Revelation is simply an affirmation that the devil will ultimately be destroyed. The devil and his cohorts are going to be destroyed, and that's really the theme of the book of Revelation. God will stand triumphant. God is triumphant. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, destroyed him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And then there's a third thing I would call your attention to as we think about the life of Christ. And this has to do with His vicarious death. What about the vicarious death of Christ? Well, we're talking about His pain primarily here. The fact that Jesus became our substitute on Calvary's cross. Two things involved as we think about the vicarious death of Christ. First, His body. Have you ever thought about the pain that Jesus experienced on our behalf The Bible tells us, well, you can read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you can get a glimpse into the suffering that Jesus experienced during the trial. I think about individuals as they slapped the face of the Son of God, who cried out unto him, prophesy, who is it that slapped you? They mocked and ridiculed the Son of God. The Bible tells us that they platted a crown of thorns and placed it upon his head that they scourged him the scourge was enough to kill a man literally exposing the bones of an individual well jesus experienced the scourge on our behalf and then in reading matthew's account the bible tells us that they compelled a man by the name of simon of serene to bear his cross i want you to think about this for a moment When Jesus went to the cross, he wasn't really bearing his cross. Now Matthew tells us that Simon bore his cross, but literally Jesus was bearing our cross. The Son of God was sinless. The passages that we alluded to a moment ago verify, attest to the fact that Jesus did no sin. As Peter said, no guile, no deceit was found in his mouth. There was nothing that could be said about Jesus that would have in any way pointed him out to be a sinner. But he went to the cross. He was crucified between two thieves or two two common criminals. The Bible says in Luke 23 verse 33 that when they came to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, the criminals, the thieves, one on the right hand and the other on. On the left. Here is the Son of God. He's been beaten. He's been mocked. He has been ridiculed. For what? For whom? Well, for us. You see, Jesus Christ went to the cross. He bore our cross because we were sinners. Because we are sinners. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5 verse 8, But God commendeth his own love toward us, In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Well, what about the body of Jesus? I like what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2. He tells us that Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree. Jesus bore my sins. He wasn't bearing his sins. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21, Him who knew no sin, he became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So here is Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, bearing my sins on the cross. Certainly that says something to us about the love of God. It no doubt reinforces the love of Christ. Jesus Himself said, Greater love has no man than this, than a man laid down his life for his friends. Why did Jesus go to the cross? He went to the cross because he understood understood that without, without his sacrifice, we would ultimately be hopeless, hopelessly lost in sin. And so he gave his body. The word vicarious simply means a substitute. Jesus was our substitute. When those nails were driven into the hands and feet of the Son of God, rightfully, those nails should have been driven into my hands and my feet, as well as yours. When that spear pierced the side of the Son of God, rightly, that spear could have been driven into my side. Because when, it, when it's all said and done, I am the one guilty of sin. You are the one guilty of sin. That was the verdict. Read the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. The Bible says that the Gentile world, they were under sin. In Romans chapter 2, the Jewish world, according to the Apostle Paul, under sin. Romans chapter 3, the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3, verse 23. So we talk about his body, but not just his body, but also his blood. In our country, as we speak, We are involved in a terrible war. I'm not sure what the body count is at this particular point in time, but I know this. There have been a lot of men and women that have given themselves on the battlefield to preserve the freedom that we enjoy in this country. That freedom has come to us at a great price. At a great expense. They literally shed their blood on the battlefield. That's what Jesus did for us. He literally shed his blood for our sins. Without the blood of Christ, you and I would be lost. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Hebrews 9 verse 22. But thank God that Jesus has reconciled us through the blood of his cross according to Colossians chapter 1. In John 19, verse 34, we read of Jesus hanging upon the cross. And the Bible says that one of the soldiers took a spear and pierced his side. And John tells us blood and water came forth. Jesus shed his blood in death. So Paul would write in Ephesians 1 verse 7 and say in him we have redemption. Through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. In Revelation 1 verse 5, unto him who loved us and washed us from our sins by his own blood. Jesus shed his blood so that you and I could enjoy the blessings of redemption. When we preach the gospel, we're telling people that unless you contact or appropriate the blood of Christ, you're going to be lost. The song that we sing from time to time. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's what what makes it possible for us to enjoy a relationship with God. In Ephesians 2 verse 12, Paul said that those who are outside a covenant relationship with the Lord, that they are without hope and without God in this world. But in Ephesians 2 verse 13, he said, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off are made nigh or brought near, By the blood of Christ. And so, the blood of Christ makes it possible for us to enjoy a relationship with God the Father. That's why when you and I live in accordance with the precepts of Almighty God, as we walk in the light, the assurance given is that as we walk in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. That blood is continually at work in our lives. We can stand before Almighty God pure and just in His sight. We have the assurance that every sin is literally hurled into infinity because the Hebrew writer said that you and I, we live under a covenant in which God will remember our sins no more. How thankful we should be for the vicarious death of Christ. Number four, the victorious resurrection of Christ. What about the power of the resurrection? Did you know that had Jesus not been resurrected from the dead, Christianity would have been dead in its tracks. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Christian religion will ultimately fall. But you and I, we know that three days after having been put to death, the Bible tells us that Jesus broke the bonds of death. That he was, as Paul said, declared to be the Son of God with power by the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, Romans chapter 1 at verse 4. How important is the resurrection of Jesus Christ to us today? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul spends a great deal of time talking about the resurrection. He, first of all, begins by itemizing the gospel. That is, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And then he points out that there were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. Think about those people that got to see the Son of God. Thomas, sometimes we call Thomas Doubting Thomas. Well, Thomas had the opportunity to investigate the risen Savior. Thomas got to literally examine the hands inside of Jesus And his response was, my Lord and my God. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, here's what Paul said relative to the resurrection of Christ. If Jesus has not been resurrected from the dead, he said our preaching is vain, our faith is vain, and ultimately he said we are yet in our sins. Somebody has said in times past that Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Read sometime the book of Acts. The Bible says that Christ showed himself alive by many infallible or unmistakable proofs, being seen by them for 40 days. Here was Jesus 40 days after his resurrection being seen by people. They could investigate the risen Savior. There are people today that look at the resurrection as a myth, as a fable, as nothing more than fiction. And there are some that would say, well, the resurrection of Christ was nothing more than a resurrection of a cause. My response to that would simply be, that's not the case. And to those who doubt the resurrection of Christ, read the book of Acts. And look at the lives of the apostles, men who literally laid everything on the line to preach what? The resurrection of Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, when we read about the apostle Peter preaching about the death of Jesus. At least two times, Peter points out to those people assembled on Pentecost Day in the city of Jerusalem that God raised Him from the dead. The resurrection of Christ was central to the preaching of the apostles. Do you really think that these men would have been willing to die for a cause that they did not believe in? Had Jesus not gone to the cross, suffered, bled, and died, and been resurrected, these men would have not given themselves for his cause. I don't believe that Peter and James and Paul and others would have been willing to have suffered persecution to have literally risked their lives for the cause of Christ. Do you think that they would have put their necks on the line for a fable, for something that was fictitious? I can tell you this, I wouldn't risk my life for something that was nothing more than fiction I wouldn't give my life for nothing more than a fable but the fact of the matter is the resurrection of Jesus Christ is central to the new testament and then fifthly the visible return of Christ when we talk about the life of Christ we look at his birth we look at his life we look at his death his resurrection And ultimately the fact that Jesus will one day return again. Investigate sometime the numerous references that set forth the fact that Jesus will one day return. He's coming again. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 1, the Bible tells us that Jesus was taken up in the presence of, of the apostles and that two angels appeared in white apparel and they asked this question you men of galilee why do you stand here gazing into heaven this same jesus that was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven acts chapter 1 verse 11 the bible teaches that jesus will one day come again so here's a question When will he come? Matthew 24, verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. What was Jesus talking about? His second coming. When did he say he's coming? Did he say that you and I can discern... The day, the time, the month, the hour in which the Son of God is coming again. Here's what Jesus said. Of that day and hour knows no one. Jesus said he will come as a thief in the night. When do thieves typically come? If a thief were going to break into your home or or business, let's just say that they they decided that they're going to pay you a call This week. They're going to come Monday night. Do you you really think that a thief is going to call you on the telephone and say, by the way, I'm going to stop by tonight and pick up a few things at your house? No, that's not the way thieves operate. Now, the Bible says that Jesus will come as a thief in the night. Listen to what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3 at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Truth is is always consistent. Error is always inconsistent. That's why when you read about the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, they were commended because the Bible says they searched the scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. Here was the apostle Paul, and bear in mind, Paul was an apostle. He wrote the commandments of the Lord, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37. So when the apostle Paul wrote when he spoke here was an inspired man and he is in Berea and what are these people doing they are checking him out they're making sure that what he says harmonizes with the word of God now if those people in the first century checked out an inspired apostle do you not think that we ought to check people out when they preach and teach something When somebody says they know when Jesus is coming again, you can just mark it down, that individual is a false teacher. He's a false prophet. He has no idea what he's talking about. How do I know that? Because that's exactly what Jesus said. So when will he come? Well, we just don't know. But second question, what's going to happen when he comes? What about the events surrounding the second coming of Jesus? The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that Jesus will descend from heaven with a shout. With the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. So what's going to happen? Well, we're going to hear the voice of the archangel. The trumpet of God will sound. He'll descend with a shout. And John tells us in Revelation chapter 1 that every eye shall see him. Jesus is not going to come secretly. He's not going to come in some secretive manner and rapture people away. And by the way, that word rapture is not in the New Testament. And if the word is not in the New Testament, that ought to give some insight into the fact that the doctrine is not in the New Testament. When Jesus comes, everybody's going to know it. As a matter of fact, John said, even the one who pierced the side of the Son of God will see him when he comes again. So what's going to happen? Well, listen to what Peter said. Peter said that when Jesus comes, the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat, and the the earth and the works therein will be burned up. The world as you and I know it is going to be destroyed when Jesus comes. We'll be ushered before His throne. At that point in time, we'll give an account of the deeds done in the body, and then He will assign our eternal destinies. That's why Peter said... In light of all that's going to transpire when the Son of God comes, we need to make sure that we are found by Him living in peace. That we are blameless, as He would say in 2 Peter chapter 3 at verse 14. We ought to be living a holy life. We ought to be living a godly life, as He would say in verse 11 of 2 Peter chapter 3. And So the life of Christ, aren't you thankful for Jesus Aren't you grateful that the Son of God came, lived, died, was resurrected from the grave, and is coming again? In closing, let me ask this question. Are you ready for the second coming of Jesus? We do not know when He's coming. We just know He's coming. And so, Scripture implores us to make ourselves ready for the second coming of Christ. In Revelation Chapter 19, the Bible says, the bride has made herself ready. I think about two individuals that are going to enter into a marital relationship. All of the planning and all of the preparation that go into that beautiful day. Well, you and I, what we need to do is make preparation to stand before the Lord when He comes again. Thank you for listening to the Anchor of the Soul. Your speaker has been Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ located at 9100 East Sandage Road in Olive Branch, Mississippi. To hear this lesson again and to see video archives, go to olivebranchchurchofchrist.org. Tune in next Sunday for more of the Anchor of the Soul. Fast shore while the billows roll Fasten to the rock which cannot move